On today's episode of the Voyager Ungraded Podcast, we sit down with filmmaker Darren Orange as we discuss the abandoned Viper film stream camera. If you haven't had a chance to check out our video on this camera on YouTube yet, be sure to check that out as well for the full story. Welcome back to a, a podcast we started last year, but are just restarting again this year to our Voyager Ungraded podcast. It's me, John Owens, the ones, you know, the voice you hear on most of the videos and now face you're seeing, which some people are not super happy they're seeing my face now in the videos, which is what it is. But joining me to talk about a little bit of an extended take on an abandoned camera we're covering and one that has been highly requested probably for the last eight months, the long-named Viper Film Stream um, is, uh, but joining me here today, someone who actually used it, Darren Orange. Um, so welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. It's fun to talk about a camera that's I worked with now some like almost 15 years ago. It's a little <laughs> weird and ironic. Is it is it kind of weird thinking back that it was 15 years ago or does it feel like that was like forever ago kind of using this camera? It it's, feels very like, front and forward like I could, I could almost envision going back and using it again because it was relatively friendly just large but uh it's strange to think that stuff now to go have, have talking with you and going back and looking at some of the footage we filmed i'm impressed with how good it holds up i guess <laughs> i feel it's kind of a weird that's kind of my bigger response like oh this isn't so bad i would i would shoot with this again today it's not terrible so it's <laughs> awesome well before we get into too much about the camera um tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and uh what kind of experiences um, you've had? Yeah, so I'm an uh, independent filmmaker out of Chicago. Uh, I've done one feature length film and working on a second right now. I've been more or less into uh, all the film camera systems way back when, so like probably 2004, five DVX 100. Experienced the whole process from there on uh, through the HDSLR revolution, which is where my first film was produced thanks to that. Um, and I'll now just kind of following. The new tech where uh, cameras are becoming a lot less exciting. So it's fun to go back and reminisce when cameras were doing new things all the time and breaking barriers. Yeah, so. you're right. There's just like not a lot of cameras doing anything new. I mean, I guess you could say like the Ronin 4D, but even that's, I don't I mean, I, I don't even know if that's the camera doing something new. It's just a new camera design, I guess. Um, but funny enough, story, Darren Orange um, messaged me. We met on Discord, which if you haven't joined our Discord community group, definitely do. It's crazy group, but a lot of fun. Um, and you let me know after one of my red videos that you had sent some of my <laughs> videos that were not necessarily painting red in a good light. You had sent it to uh, Jared Land and some others. <laughs> red. So. Yeah, they were thrilled to receive <laughs> that. They had they had some brief comments about it, and I expected it to be Kurt, but uh, it was Kurt. They. They were entertained, so that's that's a that's good. That's that's all I ask. <laughs> I mean, at, you know, at the end of the day, I I respect Red for what they do, and I respect them for pushing, honestly, creating the industry in which I work now. And I would not have been able to do this, you know, twenty thirty years ago without them pushing digital cameras into the forefront and kind of starting that. Um, but yeah, it's just funny, funny, funny way to <laughs> to meet you. And um, what? But but it's interesting that you ended up using this camera back in the day. What what projects did you work work with this on? Uh, just one. So we did a independent, uh, least shot uh, kind of uh, sizzle reel short film. Uh, it was about three or four minutes long. And ironically, I 
I, I wanted to use the best thing we could. And that was kind of the opposite. We, were, we literally got to close down a street in Chicago in front of Dearborn Station, uh, which is downtown and all that. And we had the we had this location for three days. So there was a lot of opportunity to kind of take advantage of it. And at the time, there was no red. So this is before red, you've released the red one. So we're talking July 2007. So we're about four, three or four months before the first batch got released. But everyone, almost all the people on literally working on the project had reservations because they were like either a hundred bucks <laughs> or a thousand bucks. And a lot of people had reservations. They really did. And it was like, this is going to change everything and all that. And that was our hope. But yeah, going to the camera, uh, ironically, uh, Fletcher in Chicago had it. Randomly, it showed up in their inventory briefly. And I think they had it for about three or four months. We were originally going to shoot with the DVX or HVX 200s because we knew we could rent many of those. So in retrospect, I don't know how if we should have stayed with the HVX 200 and had more than one camera. But we had basically the budget worked out to where we could we could rent this camera and use it. So we did. Uh, it was, you know, uh, it, it required a lot of extra people and effort to shoot with. And there's actually quite a learning curve to it because unlike traditional video cameras, uh, it was like one of the first, I would, I guess it was the first camera I ever worked with that required you to definitely underexpose. And that's not something filmmakers or videographers back then did. Hmm. So um, it was very easy to blow out the highlights. Uh, and it was easy to recover the darks, so the shadows. So you really had to make sure in this camera, and this was the first time people were really dealing with it, there were you know, coming from not film people, but video people trying to shoot it. So it was easy to blow out the highlights. Um, that was the main takeaway from it. And that was some shots got a little hurt a little bit because of it. Interesting. So. Yeah, because I would assume, I mean, this is kind of that that era where digital is so new and workflows haven't even really been fully thought through yet, even by professional cinematographers. So like what, I mean, was this one of your first digital cameras to work with in this kind of way, or did you use some others prior to this? Well, first, first higher end. So, I mean, you were talking about like HVX, you're working with more of a, you know, the entry level, because there really wasn't anything that was 24P that consumers could get their hands on, right? So the big thing was 24 frames a second. So you either kind of had what Panasonic was doing, at least as I recall it, which was like the HVX and maybe a couple other, maybe the F900 uh, from Sony that was reasonably priced even remotely. And then you had the high-end expensive stuff like what Sony was doing in the higher-end level costs or the Viper. And Sony didn't really have or just started to have the F23, mm -hmm. and it was much more expensive than the Viper was to rent. Uh, which is part of my expectation of why the rumor I think is true that Sony bought out all the Thompsons as soon as they stopped production because they were undercutting them for rental market wise, from what I could understand. So yeah, I know some of those Sony, those early Sony uh, cameras were incredibly expensive. I know, gosh, what was it their F twenty five or F thirty five? I'm trying to remember which one I covered, and they abandoned right after the uh, Genesis, or the Genesis was literally a Sony camera. Um, with a, you know, uh, yeah. with a uh, Panavision logo on it. But I know the Sony one was like yep. $250,000 or something um, when it first came out. Yeah, the, the, the 65, I think it was. The F65 and F35 were both almost the yeah. same price tag. They were just ridiculously expensive. The 35 was, or no, sorry, the F23 was in that like 100-ish, 120-ish yeah. range, about half the price tag, but you're just dealing with that two-third in sensor. Yeah, really. Now. And then even, so. I mean, even the, I mean, you talk about the, 
the 24 frames per second um, or the 2398. Um, that was the biggest issue that a lot of even like back when with the first film that they really shot with digital, which was Attack of the Clones, um, was um, uh, oh gosh, it was that they couldn't get it. Everything was 30 frames per second because it was all built for TV or other things to use like that. And Sony, even though the camera that they got was like specially fixed by Sony, what is that? That uh, F900 camera special. 900, nine, the 950, yeah. I think it was, the giant thing. Yeah, the thing that they tried to attach a bunch of Panasonic lenses to and didn't really work too well because of all the, the back-end elements and stuff. So it's, it's yeah, it, that's what I think so interesting about this camera in particular, the, you know, the Thompson Grass Valley or Viper Vilmstream, so many names with it, um, is that it, it does come at such an interesting time in the industry. It's before RED. Um, I think RED might have been around but they didn't have anything concrete yet and then even with some like sony and some of them they still hadn't finalized a lot of their stuff and then i think the only other camera around this time that you could think of would have been the dalsa origin that shot 4k but they barely had any of those out there and they were so difficult to manage um so yeah, they really weren't uh available to anyone like i couldn't go rent one you know they had you had to work really directly with Dalsa, I feel like if you wanted to even touch that yeah. camera, um, there's obviously, you know, there's such a technical feat. Um, whereas, you know, in this case, you're attached to like a large lunchbox with your camera. You're there, you're attached to like a large refrigerator mm -hmm. to capture footage. So you really needed their involvement and all that. So I don't, did they even sell any of those cameras the ever? Dalsas? They, I they were all owned No, by Dalsa. they like rented yeah. them out. That was their idea. And then, and then as soon as they went under, I mean, they like completely trashed all of the cameras like probably sold them for scraps. The only ones left that I know of are in Toronto with this guy um, that is a, a film school in Toronto, is a professor there. Um, and I'm actually going up there for an episode here soon to go film it. And he's going to give me some more insights behind it. And he's actually going to power the camera on and stuff. So it's like probably like the last, I think he has one or two. And I don't know if anyone else has any of them. Probably not. And it's actually kind of surprising that he was able to even get his hands on them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, like, it, it's interesting um, that you use one of these cameras so early on, because I would say this is like as far as professional end, when you really think of it, the first more accessible one to get, as far as you were saying, is them undercutting Sony in a uh, um, in a rental kind of market. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, really, the, they, the funny part is they did undercut Sony, but they're still using Sony technology. So, like, the HD Cam SR is definitely the definitive way, if you were using the camera, you'd usually record to. You know, you get an hour worth of recording at that wonderful 1080p 444 film stream. Uh, you had to do that because if you're using the the Venom that attached to the back of it, you're getting, like, eight minutes of footage. <laughs> Uh, which is kind of just giant thing, and it's eight minutes. Yeah, so you have a weird juxtaposition of what you could do. And Sony obviously designed the HD Cam SR to eventually, you know, very much be mounted uh, to the back of the camera and things like that for Sony. But this, though, you had to have it separate. You had to run two HD SDI cables to it. Luckily, we had like 50 feet of HD SDI that we could run to. So we could put this recorder <laughs> anywhere. But someone had to be there to push the record on the recorder, the camera had no oh, way to seriously? just set a signal. So <laughs> yeah, sucks. yeah, there's, it did not communicate to it. So you had to push it on the, on the actual device. So there was a lot of roll camera hearing, screaming across the street, rolling or whatever. 
you know, to confirm it. And you couldn't tell in camera that it was recording at all. You had no idea. So. Oh, that's fun. I mean, I guess in that workflow, I mean, I'm sure back then it seemed like the technology was was pretty cool, I guess, um, as far as what they were. I guess yeah. looking back now on it, it's like, wow. I mean, that's such a pain to have to do that. Um, what I guess what was maybe your first kind of impression or anything that impressed you about using the camera for this? Uh, it, it worked shockingly well, even with the wires. Uh, we did have a Steadicam and a Steadicam operator back when you're talking like legit Steadicam. So it worked well on that. Uh, it it was very reliable. It just kind of turned on and did its thing. Um, it was heavy. I mean, it was very thick metal and everything else. The image quality we got out of it. Uh, again, I really can understand why they wanted to use it at night. We barely used the camera at night or in darker sequences but it really held a lot of light very well, which I thought was impressive. And I, you know, I know Michael Mann used it on collateral, literally most of the film because of the low light performance. Um, obviously there's some dark scenes in like Zodiac and some other films as well. But I think the low light performance, I, I, because I feel like even the issues having worked one day uh, on public enemies that had the F23, uh, the Sony camera, it did not work very well. The lighting in there required a, a lot more light, a lot more punch from what I could tell to get things to expose correctly. Whereas I knew the Viper could do it darker and be okay. Um, I think that looking back now at the footage recently, it, it feels a lot like uh, more of an F, uh, like, a, like a Super 16 look, which I guess makes sense. It's two third inch sensor. I think maybe it helps because the anamorphic widescreen feature that it had, which is something we could chat about. That's a really weird feature that no one's really done in that way <laughs> since then. Um, so I think that that may have been the biggest thing. Those two pieces, the fact you could get that wider aspect ratio and it had that texture for sure, like Super 16. I mean, you kind of had to treat it the same way because of that small sensor size. So you really had to have it wide open uh, all the time to be able to get any depth mm -hmm. of field. So Yeah, and I'm... Yeah, I can imagine that was interesting even trying to find some lenses and stuff um to go with this what was the um i don't think that's something we covered um before i get to the low light thing because there's actually some interesting stuff on that what um what um what lens mounts did it use do you remember it was the uh the b um the the old school like b the the bayonet b uh b2 i forget the term <laughs> i'm blanking the term but it's the standard eng uh b Four three. I don't remember the top of my head. I should look it up real quick. <laughs> yeah, because um, I can imagine there wasn't like necessarily like this massive selection of good quality. Like, oh, you yeah. only had one. You had the Digi Primes uh, by Zeiss or Fuji, I believe, was the ones who did it. They're a, they're a, a fantastic set of lenses. If one thing was true, that they whoever was building the lenses, they were a hundred percent on. The lenses were vastly more expensive than the camera was. <laughs> however. Uh, I, that was the biggest pain. The lenses were like 200,000, almost Jeez. maybe 200 grand was what their retail value was. Um, so you, yeah, bit, they were a bit amazing, nervous uh, so. trying to use those lenses and the camera all together. I mean, that's like, well, we were insured. I mean, that's true. So it was, that's true. I was okay. With it. But that's like what, like 300, dollars um, you're holding them. Yeah, we had 500 grand worth of rental insurance just to make sure we were covered. Um, it's a B4 mount. That's it. So Zeiss DigiPrimes B4 mount. Uh, is actually the lens set. They're, you get them currently for ten grand over at Visual Products. If you really wow, want so set. I don't know what you, you would just do. Kind of need like a but, time yeah. machine now. Buy like a few now and then just go back and 
like 15 years. Go back. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll let you know when I invent that. Uh, so. uh, but, the, the, but the Viper you can't buy. That's on the other problem. So that's the thing I think is still shocking. You can't get that. You can't find it on eBay. Not that I can see anymore. You can't find it anywhere. Just vanished. Yeah, that's. I mean, that, it just basically. seems like that's kind of how a lot of these these cameras, a lot of them, just kind of vanish, and you can't buy them unless they're um, well known manufacturers. Like if it's a Sony camera that they kind of abandon. Like people love to give me a lot of crap about uh, calling certain cameras abandoned or discontinued. I'm like, there's discontinued. I'm like, well, discontinued, abandoned, kind of the same thing. If it was discontinued in an interesting way then we try to cover it. I mean, if it's just discontinued after like, you know, 15 years of use, I'm probably not going to cover it. But I mean, if it's, you know, it gets like this one, I mean, got pretty, uh, it died off pretty quickly after it. So in a way, I would say it, it got a, kind of abandoned, but yeah. Well, de definitively Thompson abandoned doing cinema yes. cameras. Definitely yeah. did that. That's true. This is their one and only go at it. And they're like, yep. And buy. which is a lot like so. Dalsa, and it's um, like a few other uh, companies throughout the <laughs> the early years that tried to kind of get into this. Um, going back to the uh, uh, the sensor, um, I, I know we talked about um, the that people really liked it because it was it worked really well in low light, a lot better than film, yep. supposedly. Um, from what our research thing, we found that. Um, the camera consisted of like an optical section, um, which had like an identical storage area, which uh, for the optics that was, they would shroud completely in darkness separated from the actual optical block. So it almost had like two of them. It had a mechanical yeah. shutter. So, so, and then once enough charge was collected in the photo sites of the optical area, the rotary shutter would close blocking the light and it would uh, kind of eliminating either smear artifacts or um, kind of helping with that low light. So I, that was an interesting fact of it that it did use the mechanical shutter. Um, and I think you could switch back and forth between using the mechanical one and the not the mechanical one. Is that correct? Yeah, it was definitively better to use the mechanical, especially if you're gonna shoot uh, film. The Otherwise you do get that kind of like held mm -hmm. charge, like that CCD smearing or whatnot. The benefit also of CCD, speaking of which, why I think it also looks good. You do have global yep. shutter yep. <laughs> <laughs> with this. So uh, there is that, it's helping it a lot too. So yeah, I think it does help because the CCDs could have those issues and those problems. And that's why many, uh, they moved away from CCDs so quickly, I think. Uh, I guess it's just, you know, the technology got better, but you had to have all this additional hardware to get the best mm -hmm. out of it that CMOS and stuff it's like that. Didn't supposedly really they were need, really so. hard to manufacture. Like you'd manufacture a batch and the fail rate of whatever you'd manufacture was really hard or really bad, which is uh, from what I understand, a big reason why Dalsa just didn't work because the manufacturing costs were also so high because they just had so many problems with the CCD sensors. Um, one insider kind of told me that like when you could get uh, the Dalsa or some of these CCD sensors to actually work. There was like some of the best footage he's ever seen still, even, uh, you know, against some of the CMOS sensors because, but it just seems like, yeah, see any, any company that went with CCD sensors pretty much went out of business before they were able to really get digital cameras off. The only camera company that I've really seen that used CCD sensors and survived was Sony. Um, and they eventually even ditched CCD and went to CMOS sensors. So it's 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 kind of interesting. Um, and I, I know in wading into this abandoned camera series, 
it uh that was one thing i did not know about was this this interesting like war between people who like cmos sensors better and think the technology is better and then people who really like the ccd sensors and say that is just so much better than cmos sensors um <laughs> you fall on either side of it it's a, i don't i don't it's hard to fall on a certain side i do think there is a benefit like it's i don't want to call it the, the vinyl record effect but like the ccd look has a lot more of an analog uh flavor to it I think that's something that's always going to be desirable because I think that how it collects the light is a lot more flat anyway by default. I think it benefits from the fact that all the CCDs captured a true RGB color spectrum. I think that's something that, get, that gets overlooked a lot. That if we had a three CMOS, which there were there are some cameras that did that, you might have some more of that additional look. Uh, but I think a lot of it's just because we had a, a uh, you know a prism in there that was breaking apart the light. And having three separate sensors collecting all that light, we didn't lose anything. So, you know, when you have these 444 readouts or printouts, you're literally getting 100% of that color information. I think that's more of what I've noticed being different. But but that's just my opinion. I think if we did that today, the cameras would be huge. <laughs> three different CMOS sensors that are super 35 and <laughs> yeah. all that. We'd have a really big camera or a full frame for that matter. So I don't know that you would work today, but back then it did. And I think that's probably what we're seeing more is that full color information being mm -hmm. present. So um, maybe Black Magic's doing something like that with their sensor now, the 12K kind, kind of. of they've, it's got full they, RGB. It does, but they like, I'm trying to remember how they do it because it kind of offloads some of it with their the, how they do the sensor readout that really compresses it a lot. I'm trying to remember. I know I did an analysis on this a while ago, but it's like it's incredibly it's slightly complex how they're doing it and they probably don't fully reveal how they're doing it. Um but I know the cool thing with how they're doing it is that at 4K, at 8K and at 12K, you get full sensor readout. You don't you don't get crop sensor at any of those, which honestly um, and someone beat me to this is in like they they market the camera as a 12k camera, but it is a multi resolution camera because it works at full frame on all those different resolutions. So it actually is pretty versatile depending on what project you're working on. If you're working on VFX stuff or need more 12k kind of resolution, you can move to that. If you just need it to be you know 4k, you can still use this full sensor readout and the sh the uh, the um what is it the uh, shutter uh, rolling shutter on it with that as you come down is very good like it's incredibly fast so it kind of gives you more of that global shutter the farther you kind of come down on the uh, um, the resolutions on it so it, it, yeah I kind of I would guess kind of the same but I'm, I'm sure losing some of that information that you still get because um, of how they're still processing it but so you mentioned one interesting thing here with it um, that I don't know if we had covered in the video, which was that um, anamorphic um, part. What yeah. what was that's like the biggest selling point, I thought, for the camera, honestly. So what so, what what um, what's so interesting or unique about that? So in internally, the actual sensor is bigger. Uh, it has more photo sites than the standard sensor to produce the resolution. So through some magicness that they don't fully explain how they pull it off but by binning some of these pixels together they actually accomplish a anamorphic image in camera with full resolution that's then squeezed um to a 1080p 444 space basically so you're able to maintain 
all of that resolution that would be lost if you just shot it, say, 1080p and then squeezed it with a lens. Here, you're doing it with actual photo sites first, then recording it or capturing it. So you're able to get the full 237 to 1 aspect ratio right out of the camera, which is standard lenses, well, standard B4 expensive lenses, but still, you don't need an anamorphic lens to pull it off, and you get that aspect ratio. And I, I we haven't seen any camera do anything like that since then. I don't know why. Hmm. Uh, I, I think that it's unique, and definitely the resolution stands up. You get a lot more out of it than you would just from the straight 1080. It definitely is clearer. Uh, just in general, and you can always take that and scale it back down. You get a lot more information. You scale it from, you know, the, the 20, was it 2580 or 2680? I forget what the actual resolution is when you expand it. But, and you can scale it back to 1080, you you basically clean up a lot of detail and improve the resolution and stuff like that. Um, obviously, back then, you couldn't really play it back anything more than 1080. Nothing really existed that allowed you to get past that. Hmm. So... That was really sharp image. That's interesting. Um, I mean, it's it's it almost sounds similar. I mean, it's not the same process, but I know the uh, the Otten uh, Penelope Delta when they made that, they made the you could actually get more resolution than the sensor allowed because they would sh the sensor would like shake in between um, uh, uh, frames, so it would get different parts of the image and reconstruct it for you. And you, I think you could almost get up to seven K resolution because of how it would shake. Now. Obviously, it didn't work out well for them because they also got abandoned pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, that's that's interesting. The, um, so you could and not even have to use a uh, anamorphic lens to shoot an anamorphic. Um, yep, yep. As long as I'm assuming that I guess the limitation would be the lens. Make sure the lens could capture that. You're still getting a wider yeah. field of view. So you just have to have so a lens that's lens probably that full frame circle. or larger or something that it wouldn't have any um, vignetting on. Vignetting, yeah. So I, I don't know the exact spec on the size required, but I know that the Zeiss Digiprimes did did it just fine. So uh, again, I think it gets overlooked. I don't know why that was the, I feel like it got used a mm -hmm. lot probably when they were using the camera, but I don't think that anyone really looks back at it and considers that valuable. I mean, then the thought was, oh, this is actually more than 1080p. It's more resolution yeah. it's capturing and nothing else was doing that really. Yeah, so. and then I guess soon after that came red, um, with their 4K camera, and then you slowly got everyone else kind of coming into the game much later down the line. But I guess maybe that kind of overshadows it, which is, I mean, I would say probably kind of how this camera met its end was Red came into the market and, you know, and Sony got going with all of their stuff and it kind of, and then Aerie even at this time was working on those, the D20, D21s and perfecting their, their craft at this. And, um, it, 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 I, some of this does feel like they created a good camera and maybe if they had uh, put a little more, do you think it was just a development issue like this? They weren't so really known as too much of a camera company prior to this, right? They kind of jumped into the, jumped into this. Yeah. They're a, they're a broadcast yeah. company, really. I mean, they're the Holy Grail broadcast cameras, them and Sony were at the top tier. So it's, it's almost funny that they'd get into the battle in, in the cinema camera world because they're really the ones you'd expect to do it. I, you know, I think that the development on the camera could have gotten better. They could have improved it in some ways, obviously. I just don't think that they cared in some ways also because I think that their income, their success was the broadcast market. Mm -hmm. So if their broadcast market is doing well, why would they want to go invest and get involved and sink a bunch of into money into a market that's into very an area small. that they don't need? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's very small and new. I mean, maybe they could have succeeded, but they were going to fight Sony on it, and Sony was already kind of there. Yeah, first, and Sony has so honestly. much more money too. I mean, Sony has ton. I mean, you even see that today. They just have resources to like dump money into like random projects, like the Sony Venice Two Rialto system. You know that they're just like. Sure, we can build it. It's just like a little technical pat on the back. Like, how many people are actually going to use it besides, like, you know, James Cameron? Um, um, I mean, I mean, people use it, but you know what I mean? It's like such a small, like, uh, market that you really need to have a ton of money behind you. Um, and it, you kind of see that early on with some of these companies trying to get in it from like Dalsa. Dalsa had money, but again, similar to this, they had their imaging stuff that they were doing for NASA and the Mars rovers and all this other stuff that they didn't really need to focus on the camera itself. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. think that's what you if you mentioned the Ronin 4D, I think Ronin 4D now with their new weird extend feature is going to eat like this, for example, the Sony's lunch because they're doing something for a fraction mm -hmm. of the price. The Sony's very expensive. So it, there's a lot of that going on where you just don't know who's going to innovate and suddenly reduce the price on something too, like yep. a feature. Maybe these productions wouldn't use the Ronin 4D, probably wouldn't, but it still has to concern Sony when all of a sudden... You know, they're this has got this expensive camera that now you can get it for a fraction of the price of this other camera. I feel that's some of that innovation has to be just kind of stepping it forward. But at some point, I feel like a camera is just well, everything we want is going to just fit, you know, easily in the size of like mm -hmm. our phone is going to be able to do everything at some point, something like that. We're not far away from that moment. Uh, really, what's holding us back, I think, is like the sensor sizes. So obviously, you could probably put a whole Thompson Viper on your phone yeah. right now, right? For example, because the sensor could fit. But at the end of the day, you need a lot of professional features and everything else. You know, you're going to need that giant body just to interact with it. Or things become fully wireless. That could be the next big leap where the sensor is just transmitting to the body somewhere or a computer mm -hmm. even. We don't even need anything. Just connect to it and record. We're kind of doing that already. Just not at, you know, raw, giant bitrate recording capture thing. Yeah, right? which I'm assuming so. we're going to have to probably figure out because I know there's just a limit, even when it comes to like internet connectivity and doing things between that, um, uh, using lasers and stuff is really the big um, transfer method now, but still you need cabling between that. So I guess it'd have to be a little bit of a leap forward. But yeah, I mean, that makes sense, everything being wireless. Um, and I honestly think AI is going to have a big part to play in um, cameras in the future as well from like helping you rack focus to like assisting on different th I mean I mean it's it's only a matter of time till you have AI on your camera system like recommending good settings for you based on you know what it's detecting and the lighting and the the focus and I mean which I mean is helpful if it helps you speed up the process and stuff I mean sure you're going to have that that degradation of like people aren't going to like fully know how to do it themselves anymore I'm sure cuz you just have a camera you know you just have the AI telling you how to do it but I, I just feel like that's where everything's headed even with um uh like lidar systems and stuff which the lidar system if you haven't played around with the 4D uh camera is awesome it's so cool to see like you know on a chart the people in the, the frames and then being able to rack focus and showing where the focus is right on them. It's, it's, it's fascinating. But yeah, I think that we're going to see it, like you're saying, evolve to where a lot of things are automated on set and get to resolutions to where we don't even have to worry about different, uh, focal lengths and things like that either. Like, you know, punching in, you can punch in with an 8k image into a 4k. It looks great still in most cases. Right. So a lot of things we're going to see, bigger resolutions and more AI and everything else to where we don't need um, or we don't need or we 
won't require, I'll use that word, uh, won't, don't require someone to be doing A, B, or C. But I think the human element's always the biggest piece. Almost funny enough to go back to, to the Viper, a lot of ways the Viper was very easy to use because there wasn't much to do, right? So you had basically, you turned it on, plugged it in, you set your gain. It did have gain settings, by the way, like three levels of gain, which is funny. And maybe a, you could tweak a little bit of the white balance, maybe, not really, it didn't really, didn't really do anything. But uh, you didn't have much to do, and I think the cameras are getting almost so complicated that I wonder if we're coming full circle to where we just want to go back to something. Just if you put a good picture in front of the camera, it looks good. We don't have to worry about all these other bells and whistles. Just make the image look good, and you know who cares? And pull focus. I mean, I'm sorry, I still think pulling focus should be done by a person, but that's just oh me. yeah. I'm old I mean, school in that I sense, like manual so. focus. I usually manual focus even for most of my jobs. It's just. I don't know. I like the, the the tactile feeling of it and not having to like play around with the auto focus. But I, I feel like maybe if you like kind of marry the two, like the AI, like it can help like almost guide it like, oh, maybe you should try this or like it can help show you where you need to rack focus. So you can you can get it closer to where it needs to be. Um, like auto aim on call yeah, of exactly. duty or something. But it just speeds up the process, <laughs> you know, speeds up the yeah. process. And yeah. I, like, I agree. Like, I think the human element will always be something even with all of these AI programs and stuff. It 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 i think it will happen at some point where they're going to be able to start doing some of that and adding that human element where it's going to be hard to tell but for now i mean there's things like um looking at an edit and piecing together multiple things from different parts you know even if it's like contract work you still need that kind of like human creativeness to be able to see something that's so all over the place and be able to find a thread to make it all make sense um, and I think that's something that we're, at least we can hang on to for a while. <laughs> is kind yeah. of that. We'll see. Yeah, it'd always be an obvious oops or mistake. You always need a human to go in there and fix something. It, it's never going to be perfect. The technology gets so good, but when it breaks, it breaks. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else interesting with this camera. I know, was it a little interesting? I mean, when you first use this, did you know that the screen, um, some of the footage would be green? Because I know that was the, the film stream yeah. look. Or for the film stream was, the, I guess, the codec essentially for the. The film stream is literally what they call mm -hmm. their log format, basically. So it's there really wasn't log in the way we look at log today. So people were naming it kind of all types of different things. So film stream was just simply how it how it stored the the image in the RGB four 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 world. Mm -hmm. So um, it just it just gave you the raw sensor readout. So that's like literally the raw information that would dump, that it record, it just gave you that raw information without it doing any processing to it. So it would otherwise do a bunch of processing to it. It's kind of the reason why I think it looks green because it, if you don't do anything to that, you're gonna have humans perceive green way more than any other color, right? That's why the, the Bayer pattern sensor and stuff like that exists with more green than any other color. I, I expected the green. I knew the green was going to happen. Their documentation was was more easily available back then. And you can see that they, oh, it's going to look like this. Don't be worried. You're going to fix it with a dropper in post and it's going to be great. Just, pick, <laughs> just make sure. Oh, that was the one thing. You had to be, had to have a white card and color card. Every shot, you, you, you had to have that. If you didn't, um, which we did in some shots, I don't think, looking back. But I only have some clips, so maybe that's not true. The, the scenes that I have aren't the complete shot, but you had to have a color chart with at least a white there because you needed the white to do the automatic color balance because then you'd do that, and then you would, you'd, you would color grade it. So otherwise, you would 
have to, you have to fight. You mean you've played with some of the footage? Mm -hmm. I think probably they've sent over it. You have to play with it to get it to look like something. Otherwise, it looks like a green mush pile. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, it was a feature, and we didn't know exactly what we were doing then because it's all was brand new. But now you would call it log, just not this. This is a green mm -hmm. log. So. Yeah, where now every camera has like a, a tendency to go towards a certain hue. Um, like Canon's super magenta all the time. Sony tends to be more green. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. Um, that is very interesting. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's it is a I mean it is kind of sad to see some of these cameras kind of like um, die off at the end and kind of go out and not be remembered as much. Though I have to say, for a camera that was not around that long, I have had so many comments during the series that to do to do this camera. Um, and we've thankfully finally gotten to it with this episode. Um, but I, I can see why everyone was very interested in doing it because it, it seems like it was very instrumental um, and maybe in an underappreciated way of helping to push the industry forward with technology. Um, and I know you said uh, that Sony, you think Sony um, bought up a lot of some of their stuff after this? I think they bought all of yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> or anything they could buy. I think that literally once they stop producing the camera, you know, they produce it for rental houses. So once you reach a certain saturation, I felt like they hit their limit. They were kind of done. And then they decided to not do any more. But they were, I feel like they still intended to service these things and support them, obviously. Uh, it's a good way to, you know, future revenue, stuff like that. But then it, when, when rental houses, when Red came about, obviously very shortly thereafter, and rental houses no longer rented them as much i sony bought them out because that was going to eat their their lunch basically because that was camera was going to cost almost nothing to rent because the demand went down because of red so we we got into a position where they could just take the remove that element from the market and then grow their brand more which is exactly what it seemed like they did that's why you really i mean there was like i want to say there was 10 10 or 10 to 15,000 of those cameras. Oh, wow. There wasn't like a thousand. I think there was a lot of them. Um, I don't know the exact number. I thought there was more, definitely more than a thousand, like several mm -hmm. in the thousands. So Sony went around and collected them all and, and, and just basically either destroyed them or locked them away. That's my opinion. That's was the rumors. Um, you know, you I, last time I think I saw one for sale on eBay was probably like in 2012, 2013, uh, and it, it, you know, it was gone. It's gone. You can't find it anymore. So I don't know. I, that's my, that's mm -hmm. my opinion. I don't, because otherwise you would see these cameras, they would be getting sold. They would be places. Yeah. They would be getting used still potentially in some weird way because you can still capture from them. If you just had in modern day recording, um, some of the Odyssey Q plus cameras, I forget the ones, the QHD or whatever they were, the, the crazy, weird, expensive mm -hmm. monitors were replacing Sony's HD cam SR. So if you had like any of these new cameras today or uh, monitors, sorry, that they can capture HD SDI, you could just stick that on top of it and, and record. Um, you would just be able to record the 1080p. So they would still work today. I don't know that you would want to use it necessarily, <laughs> yeah. but it would be a fun it, it experience, would. you know, an exercise. I think that's kind of a sad thing trying to... Um and doing these series is I'd love to like own some of these cameras because I've researched and like kind of told a lot of the stories, but there's just not a lot out there. Um, like after they're gone, they're gone. And unless someone, you know, back in the day was able to hang on to one, they just kind of all disappear. Um, this would be an interesting one to have. I'd love to, at some point 
um, like get a bunch of these cameras and almost like keep them for historical stuff or like keep put them in a museum or so because I think it's interesting and it is a part of history that is fascinating that I haven't really seen covered from the the digital side you know from film to digital and some of these early cameras you just don't find a lot of information on any of them um well, it's still fairly new i mean we're talking i, I mean i guess that's effectively i guess that's bit. true yeah. but i mean at, at the end of the day it's still like a lot of it all the the knowledge and stuff is kind of there's not too many people that have used them um some of them um like especially the dalsa like dalsa wiped everything clean you can barely and it's the first 4k digital camera you know, ever commercially sold. Um, and thankfully someone kept one, but it's, I, I, I think yeah. that is kind of the sad part of this is the, um, some of the information is lost, but again, that's why we tried to do this series as well is to try to capture as much of the data and his like all this stuff that's left in the stories and try to put them in like a fun series that yes, do we add some drama to it? And do we make fun of some companies and <laughs> do some of that yes but i mean some companies kind of like do that to themselves um it's oh, all yeah. good fun uh yeah it's yeah. <laughs> it's totally fun i mean even with a lot of my red content I, I just it red does i mean they're like one of those companies that do set themselves up for to make fun of a little bit based on like you know talking about a 28k sensor back in like what 2005 2006 and then showing this massive sensor size that you're like yeah that that was never going to happen. Um, or even like the red hydrogen one camera, which um, you starting to see a lot of cameras now or other companies making um, phones for, uh, for cinematographers and doing things that, um, but yeah, it's, it's all in good fun. I don't mean to get on anyone, but there has to be a little bit of a drama or fun story element to some of these stories or else you just get technical details and no one's ever really fully just interested in just the technical details. Yeah, I guess that's the also the interesting thing, thinking of these cameras and the evolution of them all. I mean, a lot of this stems back from, like, you know, obviously, you know, George Lucas's work and then be able to grow and expand and see the opportunities. I, I think a lot of what we see today, like we've commented from, like, either being Sony, being the Thompson Viper, and then the evolution, they kind of, like, quickly ramped up with red. And then, honestly, the HDSLR revolution, it started there shortly thereafter, too. A lot of weird things happened in quick succession, and we never, I don't think we'd ever would have expected that to happen to be, especially where we're at today, where, you know, a cinema camera is very reachable mm -hmm. for most people. That 10 years ago just wasn't the case. So, you know, seeing the quick evolution and uh, the uh, improvement of technology and the lessening of the cost is, is an amazing thing in a lot of oh, ways. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. I think that's, it's definitely the like like I said at the beginning, I wouldn't be able to do what I do today without some of the technological advancements at the beginning and kind of bringing video from professionals, you know, that you would have to like work really hard to get to that point to be able to use um, to just like everyday people, even if you just want to use it as a hobby or it's something like that. Or even for YouTube work, you can use cinema cameras now. Um, it's yeah, it's fascinating to see it. This is definitely one of those really interesting cameras that, uh, like I said, feels like it's underappreciated in the industry. Really excited to come out with this episode. Um, appreciate you coming out and uh, kind of uh, talking about some of your experiences and stuff with the camera and providing some more insights into stuff. Um, um, are there any social channels or anything you'd like to uh, promote while you're here? 
Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm just mostly online. You can find me on Twitter, Darren underscore Orange. Uh, I do some live commentary streams on Twitch sometimes with some people. Uh, CM lives on on Twitch. I hang out with sometimes and do some live movie watches and make fun of and ridiculousness. And then I'm usually available over uh, a good a good friend I run a Discord with as well, uh, Leandro, who is the educated barfly. Uh, I'm usually there. I, I am founded his discord. So that's what some of the places I'm at and about movie wise. I'm sure I'll share some things on your discord when we get closer and we're ready. <laughs> awesome. So. Cool. Well, yep. Thanks again for uh, hopping on this and, um, uh, for, uh, anyone else listening, definitely go check out the video if you have not checked it out yet. Um, but also if you've already watched it and you're enjoying this, uh, podcast, definitely let us know. Give us a rating on Spotify or wherever this podcast ends up on, but, uh, expect some more of these coming up in the future for all of our videos. Uh, we're trying to figure out some more ways to kind of expand on our content and give interesting information and resources to all of you. And, uh, of course, I'll always cover some of this history and interesting stories. So, uh, well, thanks for joining. Talk to you guys next time. Thank you. Sweet. Let me go ahead and stop this. Yeah.